uh, I was trained in group facilitation at Stanford Business School. And one of the core principles in the approach to group facilitation was that in the groups that we were in was this idea, it takes two to know one. Mm. Um, So Mm. I know I'm an expert on what's going on inside me and how I feel. And you can't tell me how I feel because you don't know, but you're an expert on how I impact you. Uh, That's so good. You you know, and so when you give me that data about how I impact you, that's really interesting. Hey everybody, welcome to No Small Thing, the podcast dedicated to helping you live a less certain and more curious life. I'm Scott. And I am Mace. Welcome to episode 140B, a Triz Chestnut. <laughs> oh my gosh, that was that was crazy. <laughs> that was one of the craziest things you've ever said. Uh, I came up with it on the spot. I, I just tell. had to go with it. I could tell. <laughs> I could tell it was bad. <laughs> Uh, this is our interview with Beatrice Chestnut, which just seems unreal to say. I know. Here we are. Um, A measly old podcast. I would say over the years, we have interviewed some people that we were surprised to get on. And there's mm-hmm. an energy sometimes where if there's somebody like Beatrice, who's sort of important and an author and busy and hard to reach, you know, some sort of admin person says you have an hour tops yes and they cut it off quickly and i don't know if it's because beatrice is a two or what but like beatrice was just so present and just gave us all the time we needed and wanted yeah willing to linger willing to talk treat us like friends did not act high and mighty was just it was just i almost wish i almost wish we would have just approached it differently from the beginning of like let's really just hang out with Beatrice Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I think we were like, Oh, we got to be super professional. We got to keep it to an hour. We got to have a lot of agenda here. We got to have really specific questions. I know I was so nervous. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it was like, she was so chill and so easy to hang out with. Um, so everybody, if you're going to listen to this, um, welcome back to the blitz. Welcome. Hopefully you like that big episode. Yeah. Day two. Um, we were going to talk about mistyping. Yeah. That's what we talked yeah. about. And this was honestly, you're hearing these in order. Mm-hmm. It was like, we were a little rattled by big hormone and we're like, okay, well let's talk to some other people about mistyping. How does this happen? Yeah. How do people, yeah. how do people take a test and earnestly engage the books like us, especially it's like, we took all the tests. It's like, we've we're read, working very hard. <laughs> we've read all the books. We have all the freaking books. And it's like, after all this time, you and I both could have mistyped. We want to know about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we're following our curiosity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think I think Beatrice had some great thoughts about mistyping, and I think in terms of just the general thing that we're offering on this podcast, we've we haven't really had a good episode about mistyping. Yeah, so and that kind it kind of emerged as a theme. So it's like we came in with the Enneagram Blitz, and we're like, we're going to talk about the Enneagram. And then mistyping emerged as a theme mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And so we're like, well, let's just be direct and ask Beatrice. And then the second half is interesting because it's like you will have listened to the, if you listen to the last episode, which we invite you to, it's like Big Hormone comes in hot and is like, Scott, you're a six. And Beatrice 
comes in hot here and is like, you're a five. Yeah. So it's like, we walked away and we're like, okay. <laughs> so you might feel that. And we felt it too. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I guess I just want to say everybody, if you go back at the very beginning when we were sort of Enneagram novices, I guess I would say we were like, here's some big books we recommend. We were always saying the wisdom of the Enneagram mm-hmm. by Riso and Hudson. And then the complete Enneagram. Beatrice has written another go-to book that's very substantive. That's called the complete Enneagram 27 paths to greater self-knowledge. She's a coach. She's a podcast co-host with you're on your pies who we love. We also want to get him on the podcast. We'd love yeah. to do an episode with the two of them. Yeah. It'd be so fun. She's a big name in the Enneagram and she's also a psychotherapist. And so I think, let me just say this really quick. If anybody's wondering part of the, part of the conspiracy, heavy quotes, heavy, heavy quotes, conspiracy that we've landed on is like, if you, if you listen to our episode about the history of the Enneagram, mm-hmm. it, it it's like, a lot of these things go back to some big teachers. So yes. Gertrude, yes. Ichazo, Aranyo. And, and Naranjo. Aranyo. No, Gosh, there's yeah. too many. Naranjo, Naranjo. And so Beatrice Chestnut as a psychotherapist, I'm sure is skewing Naranjo. Oh, for sure. For sure. And big hormone is skewing Gertrude. Gertrude. Yeah. yeah. So shoulder shrugged to that. We don't really have, we, I know, I know, I know Mace, because of the movement and the spirituality and mysticism skews Gertrude. And to a certain extent, I skew Naranjo because supposedly he's a five and maybe a head type. Yeah. Like I am. Yeah. But, um, everybody's approaching this differently. I, 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 I tend to have thought in the early days and still do think that, the, that the fact that Beatrice is a psychotherapist adds a, a little, even a, an extra little layer, layer. of credibility yeah. to this Enneagram stuff. Well, and she uses like, I've listened to her talk about this of like, she uses the Enneagram as a tool in her psychotherapy, which I find to be, you know, and she finds it very useful. It's mm-hmm. like, this is the, a very useful tool to her to use right. in psychotherapy. And I, I've, I've heard her even say, it's like, man, how are other therapists not using this? It's really helpful. So I think that that's another layer of it. it's like, well, she's using this to help people. It's a really helpful tool. So how like we're engaging with someone who this is, I mean, I'm, on path to become a psychotherapist. So I'm like, how I'm, I'm very curious around how she's using it to help people become more aware. It's like, I mean, it's like this whole thing is about curiosity and it's also like curious about how we become more present, how we become more aware, how we see ourselves better, how we can develop more curiosity for ourselves. And this, I feel like Beatrice's approach is meant to really help people in that process. Absolutely. And and she embodies that and she uh, models it and you'll hear it in this episode. Yeah, and we so, had so much fun. We're so excited for you to hear it and hopefully we get to talk to her again and hopefully we get to talk to you Ranya someday. Yes, uh, do a top we'll, five. Welcome to episode 140 B. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, everybody, we are here in the house with Beatrice, which feels a little bit like we're in a dream. (laughs) (laughs) Beatrice is not technically in the house. Beatrice is is virtually in the house with us right now. It's Um, true. So we're so glad that you're here with us. 
And we thought we would start just by hearing a little bit about how you got personally into the Enneagram. Sure. So, um, you know, it was totally by accident. Um, and it was only because uh, one of my best friends from junior high and high school, um, his father was uh, one of the early Enneagram pioneering teachers, David Daniels. Hmm. And he and Helen Palmer, who wrote one of the first popular books on the Enneagram, started uh, one of the first Enneagram schools in the United States in about 1989. Um, And in 1990, over the dinner table at the Daniels house, uh, Mm. Dr. Daniels started telling us about how he had learned this thing called the Enneagram and how, you know, even though he was like a a Stanford University psychiatrist with a private practice in Palo Alto. Um, He'd gotten really into this interesting, weird thing called the Enneagram, which was sort of um, unusual. Uh, But he saw it as his calling, he Mm -hmm. said, and he thought it was by far the most effective tool uh, for people to understand themselves that he'd ever come across. So that was saying something. Um, and so I was interested just to hear more about it. And he said that he thought I might be a two. Um, and he told me a little bit about what that meant. And so I went home with Helen Palmer's book and I read the two chapter and I was just totally blown away uh, because I had never really been that interested in psychology at that point. I was studying, I, I studied English literature in undergrad and I was um I had uh, I was going to graduate school and studying broadcast communication arts, so I was kind of studying mass yeah. media. Um, but I had never been that interested in psychology because to me it always seemed like uh, it was sort of obvious, like giving jargony names to obvious things. Like it didn't really <laughs> seem to reveal that much in the way. But yeah. now looking back, I see I was looking at sort of mainstream American psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up going back to school six years later to become a psychotherapist, largely because of the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. And when I went to school, I studied a more spiritually oriented psychology. I went to an East-West school wow. uh, to study psychology. So my, the brand of psychology I studied was more I would say a mix of Eastern spiritual traditions and Western psychology, but, but I was just stunned because I, I really didn't think there could be any kind of typology that could tell me much beyond the obvious superficial level of things. But this was saying things about me that I totally knew to be true, but, and also things that I really didn't want to admit, but when I really thought about it, I realized it was really true and it was very revealing and, and, and had a big impact on me. Hmm. Uh, I I think one, one thing that's so, I guess, encouraging about your journey is, is this uh, background in psychotherapy. And it, it seems like a lot of like the therapeutic world is very torn on whether the Enneagram would be a valid tool to use. Um, I like, I do you know the, do you know how Runkle that name? No, I didn't he, He's written several books on parenting. I have a 16 and 14 year old, so I read a lot of books on parenting, <laughs> but you know, I, I, I was hearing him on Donald Miller's podcast last week and Donald Miller uses the Enneagram for a lot of his stuff. And how Runkle was like, Oh, I don't like any sort of personality system because it we're, we're all so complicated. So to put us in a box or a label he feels would be ultimately counterproductive. 
And um, it, it, to me, it makes me feel like somebody that says something like that doesn't understand the Enneagram. Cause I, cause I think maybe I even thinking about like your acorn metaphor, it's like mm. our number or understanding our number is supposed to identify things we should be breaking free from to a certain extent, not like boxing us in, you know? Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. I think you're exactly right. I think people who say that about the Enneagram, and I think a lot of therapists might say something like that. Yeah. They just don't know the Enneagram because right. I do think there are some typologies that are more superficial or don't tell you that much, you know, don't map the human complexity <laughs> uh, uh, in an accurate way. But I think the Enneagram is different. Mm-hmm. And I think if you, if you really take the time to learn it, it, you see that very quickly that it's, it's, it's really, and I think part of it, what, why is the ancient roots? You know, mm-hmm. I think it goes very deep. And as you know, as you fans of the Enneagram, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not like every, any, every personality model. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'll say, speak for my own personal journey. I just started a clinical psychology program um, okay. because I was getting so into the Enneagram and I'm like, well, if I want to do Enneagram stuff, I need a lot more scaffolding and a robust understanding of psychology. Like I felt myself reading the Enneagram literature, especially books like yours, which are talking a lot more from a psychoanalytic lens. I was like, I need this, like I need school for this so I can actually understand the Enneagram in its complexity, you know? Um, because, That's great. Because I do think it is, it's, it can be so quickly like adopted in a mainstream culture that really is probably doing a disservice to its rich psychoanalytical roots, as well as just like, like you're saying, the, the ancient spiritual roots. Um. Yeah, that, that's, that's great because uh, I do worry that because the Enneagram is getting so popular, people tend to take it a little lightly because they get really interested in it and they don't do the deeper work of really understanding psychology. And, and for me, I, exactly the same way I really wanted, it motivated me to really get educated in a deep way about human psychology in a way that goes really well with the Enneagram. And I did find that, you know, that a lot of therapists weren't that interested in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a little frustrating, but I think that's changing. I think, I think more and more people. And one of the reasons I wrote the complete Enneagram, frankly, was to try to create a bridge between the Enneagram and therapists Mm -hmm. to try to show them that here's this amazing tool and, 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 and tell the story in a language that they might understand, but not in a language that was too jargony so that it, that it, that it, that it didn't speak to a wider audience. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that's the thing is like a lot of these other books or podcasts, or I don't know, I, I'm not, I'm not calling anybody out, but like they're all appealing to me, but maybe to a certain type of trained therapist or analyst or something like that. It, it seems to like, um, pseudoscience or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's been encouraging to me because my therapist is a psychoanalyst and a lot of my friends are therapists and they all seem to like the Enneagram. So I'm like, okay, well, that's good. And we got a lot of cool gurus like Beatrice that we follow. Yeah. <laughs> in, in my classes, like the squad of people who are into the Enneagram has fully emerged. Like yeah. the, uh, the therapy right. students who are all like, oh, we're Enneagram people too. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. That's a good sign. Well, <laughs> um, I guess, I guess just to maybe close out the, the, the opening journey part is uh, we, we are so grateful for your work and what you've done. And, I mean, encountering your book probably a year in because we did all the other books of like, and all all great books. So, not 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 dissing any books, but like, 
I know Richard Rohrbuck, uh, Road Back to You, um, Wisdom of the Enneagram, Helen, Helen Palmer. Palmer. We did all these. And somehow yours came up later. And we're like, look at this big, giant, deep book. This is wonderful. <laughs> He's got a big tree on the yeah, front. Yeah. Have you heard the acorn metaphor yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but then obviously, like, uh, we were so excited that you had a podcast. And oh, yeah. we've, we've loved it. So um, thank you for all of that work you're doing. Right, and right. we've loved so we've yeah. loved you and uh, Aranyo like as a pair because we're a podcast pair and it's fun to hear other pairs and mm-hmm. um, just we we personally like are learning from the way you guys listen to each other and talk to each other and engage with each other so very encouraged by it. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that, and I I love that to hear people you know the way they're relating to the Enneagram and the creative work they're doing with it. So um, it's, it's really good to hear all you're doing and, and, and how deep your interest is. Very, very, <laughs> very deep, deep and interested. Nerds. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, um, I guess we could transition to this next bit for mm-hmm. listeners. We were thinking we would talk specifically with B kind of about the topic of typing, mistyping, figuring out your type, what that journey is like, because, Um, listeners, if you maybe listen to previous episodes, I have identified as a four for super long and recently have been opened up to potentially being a nine. At this point, it doesn't feel potential at this point. It's like I'm a nine, fully. but it's been quite a journey for me. Um, and I guess we thought we have be here with the wisdom about typing and mistyping and has a lot of experience. Um, I'm, I'm guessing around that. Um, yeah. So I guess. In- so if somebody's just like starting out, I guess, mm-hmm. and and wanting to find their number, like we've never really done a full episode about that, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So where yeah. would you start? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is a it, it can be a barrier to entry for the Enneagram uh, because it, it isn't always a simple thing to find your type uh, in a way that's accurate. Uh, and I think there are many ways that people try to go about it. Um, one is like searching Enneagram test online, you know, Googling Enneagram test and seeing what comes up and taking a test. Um, other ways are just reading about it and kind of finding what resonates. Um, other way is, is, you know, learning from a teacher or a coach or someone like that. Um, and I think all these methods have their sort of good points and, and bad points. Um, and it, it, the main thing I want to emphasize is it, it can be the beginning of the process of self-discovery, mm-hmm. the typing experience itself. And I think it's um, some people find their type right away and some people it's a journey. Some people it takes a longer time. Some people think they're one type for a a period of time, number of years, and then find out they're a different type. I think it's, it's all okay. And it's all part of the individual uh, personal journey. Um, I would say um, in terms of uh, sort of what I would advise is to, if you do take it, if someone does take a test, to hold whatever data comes from that lightly. Uh, because as probably you know, um, many of the tests are just not very accurate. I think it's very difficult to construct a test, an Enneagram test that is totally accurate, that is a high degree of accuracy partly because of the complexity of the human personality, but also for a few different reasons. One being that, you know, the the Enneagram describes both 
patterns that tend to be conscious, but also Mm -hmm. blind spots and unconscious tendencies. And so you can, you know, read a question on a test that says, are you like this? And you can say, no, I'm not like that, but maybe (laughs) that's a blind spot for you. And so it can be problematic to take a test and then rely on the outcome of that test. So I would say, I wouldn't say don't take a test. I would just say, if you do, don't look, don't give your authority away to the test. Don't say the test knows me better than I do or something Mm -hmm. like that. So that's, that's one thing. And I also think some tests are better than others and it can be hard to find even the most accurate test is is wrong sometimes. And some of the more popular tests are wrong a lot of the time. Um, and so that that's one reason. I think sometimes people take a test and they kind of go off on that. Uh, they kind of get in get an idea that they're that type. And then there's, you know, confirmation bias, because if you think you're a type, you can interpret the data of your experience through the lens of thinking you're that type. And I think that's why people get, you know, mistype themselves. And it's, it's understandable because we all, we all do that. And so sometimes it, it just takes some time to get to the deeper level of what really motivates you. Because another reason why it's hard to find your type is that different types um, display the same behaviors. Mm-hmm. You know, they have some things and they have similarities. And so, you know, if you avoid conflict, there are several different types that avoid conflict. Uh, and it can be tricky or sometimes a little bit difficult to get down to the deeper layer of why exactly do you avoid, do you avoid conflict and what's that about for you and how can you sort of sift through the data of what you know about yourself to find the true motivation. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's been very interesting as people that are talking about the Enneagram and, and suggest the Enneagram for personal growth and for marriages and groups and people working together. Uh, you know, uh, so there, there are times where I'll be with someone and talking about the Enneagram. I, I don't know exactly these exact situations, but I just have an image in my mind because we've been talking about it for so long of like, somebody quickly pulling up a test on their phone, doing it in 10 minutes and then holding it up and be like, look, I'm a seven. And I'm right. like, Oh, <laughs> and then, and then that's it. And, and, and every time I talk to them from now on, they're like, I'm a seven Remember, I took that test. And I'm like, gosh, I, I don't know if this was the best way to go about it. I don't know if I encouraged something that was ultimately going to be some sort of like self-fulfilling prophecy now. And you're going to miss out on that deep work. So I don't know. I mean, do you get concerned that, It's like it's not up to any of us, obviously, to micromanage anybody's experience. But do you get concerned that uh, people? Oh, I guess what do you have concerns about tests? (laughs) I mean, you've already mentioned that, but yeah, I have big concerns about tests. Now, I I do a typing interview myself, Mm -hmm. and this is something. This was part of my training when I had my first Enneagram training back in the mid 1990s. Um, uh, I went through the narrative tradition school and learned their typing technique. And, and I've been kind of honing my typing interview over, you know, 20 plus years. Um, and now I actually feel pretty confident. Like in the beginning, I made a lot of mistakes, um, for many years. Um, and now I feel pretty confident about my interview. I've Mm -hmm. been doing this now. I do a 90 minute interview and I like to take 90 minutes. I ask people questions for about a little more than an hour. Mm. And then I kind of tell them what I'm hearing. And Mm. I'm always really careful to relate um, what I heard them say 
to what type I think they might be. And again, I, I hold it very lightly. I don't say you're this type. Usually, though, after an hour of asking questions, I can usually narrow it down to one or two, sometimes three, but usually one or two types. And then I do a more collaborative process with mm -hmm. them where I say, here's what I'm hearing. What do you think? And then I ask a few more questions and then we kind of work it out together. And I think just because I've done it for so long and I've and I've learned my it's like my ear has become trained to hear Certainly. how different types answer different questions. And I've also honed the questions into sort of, you know, what are the best questions for the different types to really sort of tease apart the different kinds of responses that you hear. Um, so I, I feel good about my typing interview, but it's a 90 minute typing interview. And, yeah. it's, and that's a more, more of an investment of, of, of resources and time. Um, but that's one way of, of learning your type. And, and I'll tell you my experiences um, lately, which I think are kind of interesting because a lot of people end up, you know, I don't have a lot of, a lot of time in my schedule. So people who I end up doing typing interviews with these, day, these days are people who persist a little bit, like <laughs> they might've waited a month or so. And, and I, I love hearing their stories about why they haven't found their type yet. Because some yeah. of these yeah. people who are people who have been studying the Enneagram quite deeply and sincerely for a while, mm -hmm. um, and they aren't, sometimes they're almost sure, but they're not really sure. Sometimes they're, they, they haven't really narrowed it down. And I'll tell you, I hear stories from them about why they haven't found their type. And one big story I would say I hear a lot is that they thought they might know what their type was, and then they went to an Enneagram coach. Oh boy. And that coach said, for instance, here's an example of something I hear. Oh, well, they say something like, are you, are you patient? And the person says, oh, no, I, I'm not very patient. And they say, well, you can't be a two because twos are patient. Mm. Ah, right? To me, I'm like, okay, that's not true. Like yeah. some twos are very impatient. <laughs> you know, that's not a discerning question. But somewhere along the line, this Enneagram coach got that idea and so they kind of close down that possibility for this person. And maybe they're, they're not, they just don't realize how their knowledge is sort of limited in a certain way. Um, or I heard another person say something like, well, um, are, are you like this? And it's like, oh, well, then you can't be a four, you know, right. so things like that. And so, um, and also sometimes a lot of people, they've gotten a lot of other people's opinions about what type they are and mm -hmm. it's, they've gotten all these different opinions. And so they're not really sure how to weight those other opinions with theirs. And I think it's good actually to get opinions from, especially from people who know you really well, yeah. that is a good piece of data. But again, I don't think any one piece of data should be given too much weight, especially in the beginning when you're still exploring. Yeah. I think something that is interesting too about typing interviews or, cause good I target. recently, um, I'm just watching this. Okay. Um, because <laughs> I recently, like I said, kind of was talking to other people and their outside opinion was really helpful in a lot of ways because yeah. I like their questions were different than what I was asking myself and mm -hmm. a little more creative. And even people who are close to me, like Scott was with me in the thing and Scott knows me and we know each other really well. And we related in this certain way of being a four for a long time, but there mm -hmm. was something really helpful for me about having someone kind of more objective like they're not super invested in what type I am they haven't been invested in this relationship with a uh, type four they're like meeting someone fresh and able to kind of hear the phrases I'm saying and the words I'm saying with these questions and uh, it was for me it was a really helpful experience having 
someone who was able to, to pick up on those themes that were sticking out that I didn't really have the, the ability to see because I, I feel like I had maybe deep driven too hard once I thought I had found my number and was just like in this tunnel vision of my number. And in a lot of ways as a nine, I think I merged with the type four, like typology. Mm -hmm. Like I read that yeah. and found a lot of comfort in this type and was able to take on this type. And I think one thing that I've realized is by identifying as a four, it kind of helped me to feel a little more confident with how many emotions I was feeling or confident with what I've been holding back with other people and what I haven't brought to the surface. So typing mm -hmm. as a four was in a lot of ways like a, a, its own defense to keep me, you know, allow me to be a little more confident or allow me to be a little bit more pushed back on things. Um, but it's it's been really helpful now realizing, okay, that was probably coming from a nine perspective. And okay, there's a lot more work to do there. But having someone kind of with an outside lens to me was super helpful too. Because like you're saying, our friends are super good data points, but our friends also maybe if they think you're a certain type are going to interpret it from that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you're, I, I totally agree. I think it's great to hear from people who know us well, as long as we realize they can have their biases too. Mm -hmm. You know, like I've heard, I heard a story from a nine recently and she was looking at her type and trying to decide if she was a nine. And she said to her partner, she said, I, I, but I don't avoid conflict. And her partner said, Oh yes, you do. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, and, yeah. And that, that's a really important data point. <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it accounts for a blind spot she had, right. you know? So I think uh, on one hand, it can be really useful to hear from people because they often experience us in a very accurate way that we don't experience ourselves. Yeah. On the other hand, we don't want, I've also heard stories of someone, you know, someone who I thought, uh, was an eight and she thought she was a three and she said, Oh, my friend says I'm a three and mm -hmm. here's why she says I'm a three. And I'm thinking your friend is wrong. You know, <laughs> so I think, I think it can cut both ways. Right. Um, right. Again, that was my inside voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I guess I would have a question too, as people are kind of, I think some of our listeners maybe are new to the Enneagram and some of them maybe have been doing it for a few years um, is what my guess is. And I would be wondering, like, if you have any encouragement or words about just the long process of typing or, like, taking your time in figuring yeah. out your type and what is discovered in the process of figuring out your type. I would say, you know, see it as a process. You know, don't feel like you have to know it right away or that there's something wrong if you don't know it right away. Mm -hmm. I think what should happen is you should get to a point where it really lands in you and you feel a kind of certainty. Uh, but it may take a while to get there and that's okay. Um, and I think, I think nines in some ways are a special case because <laughs> nines are notorious for thinking there are a lot of other types or thinking yeah. they're one other type. <laughs> And again, I think it speaks to, in some ways, uh, the gift of a nine, which is, you know, nines are really good at really understanding somebody else's experience, yeah. someone else's point of view. And so that's a positive in many ways. But of course, the downside is sometimes nines have trouble finding themselves because they have more access to outside data than they do to the data inside themselves. So mm. that's, that's, you know, normal uh, for nines. And so I would just say, see it as a process, um, 
consult multiple sources of data. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you take a test, that's fine, but don't see that test as necessarily the right answer. See it as a piece of data. Test it out by taking maybe another test. Read some, you know, some good descriptions of types um, and ask people who know you well that you really trust will be honest with you that that and take into account what biases they might have. So, so again, to use all of this together. Now, one thing I want to emphasize that's just a part of, as you probably know, my approach to the Enneagram is I think the subtypes are really important in typing. Um, and the subtype approach that that we use, that I use, which is what sometimes I refer to it as the Naranjo approach, the modern Naranjo approach. <laughs> um, I think other people have other subtype definitions that I don't think are as accurate as Naranjo's um, and as the one that that, that I uh, use in my work. Um, I just think that helps so much because the sub the twenty seven subtype descriptions, it's like they give more nuanced categories. And that in the 27 are described types that you won't find if you're just using a test that's based on the nine types. Yeah. For instance, a lot of authors and teachers don't even know what a self-preservation four is. They don't understand that a social seven looks like a two. You know, they don't understand yeah. that a social nine can be mistaken for a three or a four or a two because they look a little bit more like a heart type. They can be really busy like a three. Um, so I think the subtypes add so much, and that's part of why I've developed more confidence in my in my interview method is because I'm always thinking in terms of the subtypes, hmm. uh, and I think if you it's like 27 categories gives you much more nuance than just the the nine is like a little bit like a blunt instrument, mm-hmm. and so that's why I think a lot of the tests that are based on just the nine without a more nuanced understanding of the subtype. Uh, and all the possibilities, the sort of the three possibilities of each of the nine types is just a more limited process. So, um, so yeah, I think it's, it's giving yourself some room to find it out. Now, when you do find your right type, not only should it fit at a deeper level and should it make sense of a lot of things in your life, but also there should be what a friend of mine calls the ick factor, you know, it's not always completely good news. Yeah. Um, some no. people find their type and they're really excited. And if you're not a seven, then maybe that might not be your type uh, <laughs> because there are types that um, we want to be, you know, and it's funny. I have a friend who had mistyped and uh, she saw herself as a really evolved eight. I'm like, well, or a not so evolved two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it can be a little bit like that. Like, oh, I want to be seen this way, but I'm actually more this way. And so I think if it shouldn't always be hundred percent good news, but, but it should fit at a deep level and it should make sense of things in your life and mm-hmm. give yourself room to, to explore different possibilities and different sources of data until you get to the point where it really feels like you're landing in a place that feels like home, even, even if it's not completely comfortable. Even if it's yeah. Really yeah. That, I love that. And, and what do you think um, in your experience, what are some sort of like classic inhibitors of people being able to discover their type, like in terms of like defensiveness or not being able to see themselves? That's a great question. Um, and I think one that people should be asking themselves yeah, all the yeah. time. I think a big one is um, not wanting to see certain things in themselves, mm-hmm. yep. either because they don't want other people to see them that way. Yeah. 
uh, or there's something painful about yeah. owning that in themselves. Yeah. Right. Like I think sometimes let's say twos have pride, you know, and pride is really important to understand for twos. And sometimes the pride gets in the way of seeing certain things that are true about yourself and owning that and saying, this is because it feels humiliating. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the two doesn't want to be seen that way and, and can be resistant to seeing that as part of who they are. Um, another thing is not recognizing certain blind spots and not wanting to. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, some sevens really don't relate to the fact that focusing on what's positive and what's enjoyable is a kind of running away from what's painful. Yeah. Um, I've had a lot of, uh, you know, there is one test I use, especially when I work in business, because it's a little bit more necessary, but I think it's by far the most accurate test. Um, and when they get the report, you know, the sevens will say, oh, I related to everything in the report, except that part about moving away from pain. I don't do that, yeah. you know, and it's yeah. very kind of cut and dry. Um, and so I think there are just some things that when people read it about the type, they kind of go, ouch, yeah. like, I don't want to own that. I don't want to be seen that way. I don't want my identity to be that. And so they resist that and they, they want to deny the fact that that's part of who they are. I mean, I think like relating to me thinking being a nine, like I didn't really want to be this nine in the sense of like doormat is the first word that's coming to my brain or like this person that's so like flimsy and doesn't have a sense of self. Like, I think I was yeah. really concerned about that potential that turned me away from even considering the nine. Um, yeah. So I think it, like I found it was probably a lot of defensiveness <laughs> that brought me to that four because it was, it felt better. And I think there's a piece of me that wanted to be a four, you know, like a four felt cooler. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's so funny that you say that because one of my closest friends is, uh, is a sexual nine. And for so many years when we, we went to therapy school together and for so many years, she would say, are you sure I'm not a four? <laughs> <laughs> and Please. I always joked that she was a wannabe four. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I don't know. I don't know how the best way to talk about this, but there does seem to be some pitfalls, obviously, to, to doing that, but also maybe some sort of unconscious integration. If you are a nine and you're starting to cultivate certain personality traits of a four in terms of celebrating your own uniqueness and your own voice and standing apart from others, mm -hmm. you're like integrating without even knowing it, but probably you're not following your suggested growth paths yeah. as a nine if, you're, <laughs> if you think you're a four. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, you mentioned this earlier, and I think this is this tricky thing that you hear, like, oh, I'm just a healthy four, or oh, I'm just a healthy yeah. one of these numbers. And yeah, I think yeah. that's something that's really interesting with Enneagram is like most of us are all on average levels. Like mm -hmm. people who are kind of integrating into these, whatever the the branch points, the lines, the arrows, I, I feel like those, those often confuse people in the typing because they say, oh, well, I'm just, uh, yeah, like you're saying, like a two or an eight that has a lot of two, you know, that integration or um, those pieces when you're saying, well, maybe it's actually the unhealthy of the other numbers. And we want right, to avoid right. thinking that we're average levels or maybe unhealthy or doing unconscious things. Exactly, exactly. And I think it's only natural for us 
to defend against seeing some of these parts of ourselves that maybe we haven't really fully integrated. And I think it's very brave of you to kind of say, well, to own that defensiveness. I think there was something I was defending against seeing in myself. Mm. Uh, And also, I, I think it's also a good point to say maybe identifying as a four was a part of you that was moving toward health already. Uh, But I do think that airline movements can be really important in both confirming your type eventually when you do find the right type, you know, for for you now kind of recognizing, okay, how can you see your movements to three and six? And and does that make more sense than having movements to one and two if you were a four? Um, And then I also think that sometimes people mistype along the the arrow, one Mm -hmm. of the Mm airlines. For instance, I had a client once and when she first came in a coaching client she thought she was a five and very quickly my sense of her was as an eight Uh, her energy just felt very eight-ish even though she was also very intellectual Uh, and I started to see her as very much kind of living on this line Mm. now eventually um, we talked you know there was a natural opening to me kind of saying you know I think you could be an eight what do you think and we've and we she did eventually see herself as an eight and especially a self-preservation eight, which looks a lot like five. Yeah. Um, and we talked very much about how she had a lot of five in her yeah. uh, and how the self-preservation. So so sometimes it's like sometimes finding your right type is it's like the pieces of the puzzle kind of coming together. Yeah. Uh, totally. And the arrows can be a part of that, which and so I, I, I like that you're pointing to that. Which and I think this is interesting with when I thought I was a four, then. I, I don't know if you know soul child theory or like this idea of yes. like the the arrow against or whatever is like your soul child. So when I was a four, it was a one. And then as a yeah. nine, it's a three, which both kind of lined up in the sense of I was doing what was needed in my family and achieving and being successful. So mm-hmm. I thought that that was one stuff. And I think I probably I definitely think I have a one wing. But uh, realizing now I'm like, oh, there is a lot of that was more three. Like that was a little bit more, look at me, see me. Like I'm going to do this thing to be seen as opposed to more of like to be good. It was more wanting to do the things that helped me be seen. Um, So kind of that piece actually made more sense. The three, Mm -hmm. even though the one also kind of did like in terms of my behavior, but the motivation piece, I was like, oh, it does feel a little bit more image motivated why I was doing things as a kid. Oh, that's great. That's a great discernment, a great example of discerning between the two. And, and These now things are so subtle. It's so subtle. And now it's really yeah. helpful of seeing like, what, what does a three integration look like? It's me claiming the spotlight again. It's me saying, I have a right to be seen and have spotlight. And, and that, that growth feels a lot better than like, oh, one, I'm going to become more organized, which is not really necessarily a one thing, but that's what it felt like to me. I was like, will I all of a sudden be more structured and like have more like, that it the the three line is all of a sudden making a lot more sense. I'm still not sure about the six. Haven't connected with that yet. But <laughs> <laughs> um, right, yeah, I I feel like that is. Well, do you want to respond to that? Because <laughs> I was gonna say something else. Do you want to respond to that, Beatrice? <laughs> I mean, I do think that sometimes we relate much more to one arrow than the other, mm-hmm. and it's always very instructive which one it is. And sometimes, like, I'm, I'm like you, I relate much more to my arrow against. Uh, as a two, I relate much more to four than I do to eight. And eight sometimes is sort of the, the ultimate 
you know, the arrow width is sometimes the ultimate challenge. Yeah. Right. Uh, some people for, you know, because of their background have lived more at their stress point and it's usually not a good thing for them and that it's been difficult. Hmm. Um, and they need to go to the arrow against to do some work there b- before they integrate that. But it kind of makes sense that, that you would re- you might relate to that arrow and, you know, social nine is a lot like three in yeah. many ways, more so than the other two nines. Yeah. No, it's true. Um, and I've seen that come out in you in lots of ways. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I guess I have a question uh, because I, my, my wife got certified in the Enneagram with a, I always forget. She's like, um, you know, remind what, what's my, what's the tradition I'm certified with? And I was like, Oh, I forget. Um, so I'm, I'm feeling like really dumb. It's for something nine, any, a nine. Yeah. The, the, the complete nine or something. I forget. Shoot. Um, <laughs> But they call the arrow points stretch and release. Oh, IEQ nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. <laughs> so yeah, they call it stretch and release instead of integration or health unhealth. Um, do you have any yeah. insight into that language or like, like why health and yeah, unhealth? Yeah, strong opinions about the airline movements. Yeah, um, I. You know, I'm against, and Russ Hudson has disavowed the disintegration language. Yeah. Um, so I don't that one arrow is healthy and the other arrow is unhealthy, right. like the integration disintegration language suggested. Um, I think both are, we can slide to both arrows unconsciously. Mm-hmm. And when we do that, it's sort of like a release of tension. It's mm-hmm. like a release valve. And when we do it unconsciously, we tend to go to the low side of either arrow, right. you know, and mm-hmm. we can do either in, in stress. Now, I, I think that, the arrow against is a security point and the arrow with is a stress point is a little more accurate, yeah. but it's not the whole story. I think, I think mainly these are developmental opportunities. These are ways of creating growth shifts mm. in conscious ways. So when we go to the arrows consciously, we really create, uh, it's like they're special access points hmm. and they're like the perfect antidote to what we need to grow. But I also believe very strongly that we need to access them in in a particular order when we use them consciously for growth. One is first we go against the arrow because that's often what had to be sort of neglected in childhood, the the soul child uh, illusion that you mentioned before. Um, And and it's important to go back in time first because Mm. it's like regaining or re-owning something that was part of us that we didn't fully integrate. It's very important for us to balance ourselves out. And once we do that, we're more, we have more self-structure internally to make the trip to the arrow with, which is a more challenging movement, Hmm. but it's also the movement of spiritual growth. Hmm. It's the real movement of growth forward, which is why it's not a disintegration point. And I think that was uh, not a good name because it gives you this idea that's a bad thing when yeah. actually it's a really good thing, but only after you've done the work against the arrow first, because if you, you don't do that work first, any change you create by going with the arrow is won't be sustainable hmm. uh, because hmm. you don't have the internal structure to really sustain that change. Gosh, I mean, this has all been so substantive, but that feels what, like one of the most substantive or biggest aha moments, at least for our podcast. Because, I mean, I think that was one of the really confusing things in the initial days of me learning the Enneagram, even with my family, but us too, of really trying to wrap our minds around health and unhealth. I, uh, we would say, oh, we do this in unhealth, and I don't think we quite knew what we were saying 
you know, it's like trying to pinpoint like, okay, if I'm a five and I'm going to seven in unhealth, quote unquote, like, well, what does that mean? It's like, I'm seeking out like fun experiences or I'm, I'm manic. Like, what does that mean? Like, and, and trying to think of like only exclusively the, the, the unhealthier elements of seven. And that's what it means when I go to seven in quote unquote unhealth. But this like stretch and release are just saying, just going, because this is what my wife has been trying to communicate to me. And I'm sort of pushing back being like, that's not what Russ Hudson says in the wisdom. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, this is making a lot of sense. Like the, the conscious effort to go to these and at the appropriate times. You know. Yes. Now, I also have a bit of a disagreement with the way that I that integrative enneagram solutions talks about yeah. the stretch and roll. Yeah. Okay. Because the way they teach it, it's like if you need a gentle shift, you use one, and if you need mm. a bigger stretch, you use the other one. That's not the way I see it. The way I see it is you need to do the work, the conscious work against the arrow first. Yeah. Right. Full stop. Full stop. Then once you've integrated that arrow, the sort of high side qualities of that, then you work on integrating the kind of healthy qualities of the arrow with that. It's a kind of going back into like a regression Mm. to to Mm -hmm. make progress Mm -hmm. first. And then it's like going into the future or, you know, know, developing a new kind. That's what I've heard. Capacity. And both of them are antidotes for the main type. That's what I love about it. You know, cause like if you look at five, it's like five is the most, one of the most introverted types and eight and seven are both the most out there in the world types in yeah. some ways. Yeah. The most extroverted. Gosh, that's really helpful. That right. is very helpful. Well, and it goes along with soul child theory in the sense of like, if you're thinking about how your personality is formed, like, I think soul child theory is kind of saying your essence is what you're against the arrow number is. And so it's like when you're going against your arrow, you're, you're going back in time and you're, you're consciously now integrating this piece of you that you left behind when you formed your personality. So then you're saying, this is here. Now I'm consciously bringing this in. Mm. And then you're now stable enough to say, where can I go with those pieces? Is that kind of the, the way it's, Yeah, I think the soul child piece is this is a sort of deeper layer of your soul, but it's something that didn't get received well often Mm. in childhood. Mm, So for instance, if you're a nine, um, nines kind of sometimes get overlooked and their ability to kind of be on stage and be recognized is not supported. In, Mm. In fact, they're not recognized, you know, and so there may be that impulse early on, but because it doesn't get met, in a positive way by the environment, it sort of goes, you know, it goes away, you know, it doesn't get, it doesn't uh, be, it's not part, doesn't get integrated as a healthy part of you. Mm. And so that's why it's important in a conscious way for nines to really say, okay, I need to do specific things in a very conscious effort to own the three in me, Mm -hmm. you know, and see that as a very positive thing. Now, there is a way that we can slide to both places in an unconscious way. So another piece of self-development is observing, hmm. you know, how you might go to both arrows in an unconscious ways under certain conditions. Hmm. Uh, and, and so how, oh, I can see that I'm sort of acting, make, like some nines will say get, um, they'll, they'll get really busy, but not in a way that's good for them, you know, in a way that's more, out of stress or anxiety than it is out of sort of a kind of healthy conscious productivity in a way that serves them. Mm. Uh, 
uh, you know, it may be doing all these inessential things and not doing the, what the real priority in a way that serves you coming forward and what you, what your own agenda is in a good way for yourself. Mace registered us for a business license yesterday. So I felt like that was a good priority. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever it was. (laughs) Good work. Thank you. Yeah. It's, this is so good. I think, um, it, it is, it is interesting that I guess anybody can create a podcast. We always try to give the premise of like, we're not experts. Neither one of us are certified in the Enneagram, although we talk about it a lot. And, um, we always say like picture being at a party and we're in the corner talking about the Enneagram. And <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You know, You're we're, we're allowed. I was like, we're allowed to do that. And just, uh, <laughs> but to, to a certain extent, sometimes I think we're pa- playing fast and loose with a lot of these terms. And on the one hand, I want to say we have something to offer in the sense that we've researched this, but it is, it is nice to talk to Beatrice and get some clarity on some of these deeper things about the arrows and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, I think one of the things that we've already touched on and, and I don't know, I mean, maybe, well, I have lots of thoughts. <laughs> um, it's really, it's really interesting when, when people are initially typing and I guess I'm just continuing to think about people who are listening for the first time. Oh my gosh. Let me turn off these notifications. Um, uh, gosh, I'm so sorry. Um, I can edit this out. Turn this off. Um, Let's see. How do I get the full screen again? Okay, thanks. Um, this idea of sort of the whole package of a type. Uh, uh, so so it, it can be a really nice way to honor somebody's really great qualities. But even even with twos, it's like you mentioned pride. You know, somebody will be like, look at the types or just the names. And say, like, I'm the helper. You know, I'm so excited. And I'm like, I see that. And I, I'm, then I'll quickly, maybe maybe annoyingly say, like, do you give to get? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and they'll be like, no, never, never. Um, I ha- actually, my mom's a two and I had a long conversation with her about this for like two hours a while back. And I was trying to get her to see this isn't a bad thing. Like, mom, I'm not judging you for this. I'm just like, and, and, and she just, she just couldn't see that there was uh, still beauty in the giving. I'm like, I still like the giving that you give. I mean, she's like, but it taints it now. Like it's not, it's not true giving. And I'm like, it is because I got something. I really did. The gift is there. The service is there. It's just nice to know that you would admit. (laughs) And she, she came back like six months or texted and like, Oh, I admit it. I am doing that. And you're right. I still want to give, but, but yeah, I think every type does that to a certain extent when they're initially typing and it's sort of, I don't know my, the best word I can say for it, but like, um, maybe I feel slightly irked or something like that of of like, I was hoping to use this tool to get you to see something about yourself (laughs) and you're not doing it. (laughs) You're only seeing this one nice positive thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know just in terms of like, um, I think I almost already asked this question in another way, but in terms of like a therapeutic setting, um, I I'm a fan, even though I'm not trained in any way of psychoanalysis. And I know there's a way to sort of, come at these things sideways. Um, so I don't know, I, I guess what I'm asking is what's a better way to broach the topic of some of these things rather than coming at it head on in your opinion, broach the topic of specific characteristics that you want someone to own that they might not own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> maybe don't do it. I don't know. My, <laughs> maybe maybe it's, maybe one of the things my they want that. <laughs> close friends of mine say is I'm always digging. I'm always like kind of poking and digging, and maybe I need to just let that go. <laughs> what a question. Yeah, I don't know. Well, uh, I think I think you you can always you can always try asking questions. Mm-hmm. You know, now you may have an agenda and that's okay as yeah. long as you are conscious of it. I mm-hmm. think when we get into trouble is when we're either coming from a more unconscious place. And one of the things I like about you guys already is how honest you are, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think on the one hand, you can state your intention and be honest about it. On the other hand, you can ask questions, you know, have you noticed this about yourself, you know, and have what about this? And you can see, and I think it's, I think you're right. And I totally relate to this myself that when you get interested in the Enneagram, you kind of want to go on a mission to make everybody get more aware of themselves, you know, Uh, and that's hard to do. And I, you know, as as a two and as a person, I've had to really work on kind of letting go and realizing I really have no control over whether someone else gets conscious or not. Um, and all I can do is what I can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think sometimes when you recognize the limits of what you can do and you really get clear about, you know, we can't change anybody else. We can only change ourselves. Uh, then it, it, it can tend to sometimes take some of the pressure off uh, what we might want to do to to wake other people up. So wise. So wise. Um, we can only change ourselves. Yeah, I, I know. And I think it's almost like in model, like you don't want to do this to help bring other people into it like this subversive like mode but I do feel like if you can model it or just yeah, yeah like in yourself like exactly find your own ways of being conscious like I I do think that that can seep out into other people and like in a way help you to even hold that the person is doing these things that might be happening in their ego and the more aware and just in touch with it we are we might have more empathy for that happening in other people yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I, I think serving as a model is a really important thing, and telling our own story is a great way to inspire other people. And even just the idea that maybe the fact that you had a hard time finding your type might maybe you're meant to be a model, like through your podcast of talking about you know how sometimes you don't get your type right and. Mm-hmm your honesty and your willingness to share vulnerably about what that was like can be something that really helps other people understand themselves through hearing your story. Yeah. I hope that's the case. I hope that, I think that, I think that will happen. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Um, I, I have so many questions. I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean, one question comes up from something you said, I think in your podcast. Um, and, and I don't, I wonder what you think about this just in terms of, uh, maybe certain Enneagram types of leaders or instructors picking up almost a superpower of being able to read somebody, like somebody's energy. And I remember said you said early on in your experience, somebody said that we're standing next to you and they felt like they had to protect you. Mm. Um, yeah. How wh- What do you think about, how much credibility do you think is in that sense of being able to read someone or pick up on mm. someone's energy? Mm. And how how much would you want to pay attention to that intuition of like, this person feels like they need to be protected. So therefore a self-pres too, you know, or something like that. Yeah. I think, I think on the one hand, I think we all have a capacity to be intuitive often more than we own Mm. and more than we focus on developing. Mm. 
Um, so that's one thing. I think picking up on someone's energy is, you know, that's a really important source of information. Uh, on the other hand, I do think we need to be careful because sometimes we can be wrong. And I do think we need to um, develop that capacity in different ways. Yeah. You know, and certainly something like being in therapy can getting to know ourselves better can be part of that effort. Uh, but yeah, that's an example from when th that guy helped me figure out what, what subtype I was because he helped me figure out I was self-preservation because he gave me the data that he was feeling in himself mm -hmm. about how he experienced me energetically. Mm. Um, and, and that was something that was really important information for me that I couldn't have accessed myself. And, um, you know, I, I, was uh, I was trained in group facilitation at Stanford Business School, and one of the core principles in the approach to group facilitation was that in the groups that we were in was this idea: it takes two to know one. Mm. Um, so mm. I know I'm an expert on what's going on inside me and how I feel, and you can't tell me how I feel because you don't know. But you're an expert on how I impact you. Yeah. Uh, Ooh, that's I so good. You, you know, and so when you give me that data about how I impact you, that's really interesting. Um, and I think energy is an important piece of it. Like I was talking about that woman who came in at one of my clients and saying she was a five, and energetically, she just didn't feel like a five to me. Yeah, yeah, right. Which, oh no, be you that they come into the room with, even if they're self preservation. And even if they have a strong movement to five, they just can't hide the fact that they have a different energy. And so I think energy is something that I think a lot of people are learning more about now. Mm -hmm. And they're, we're getting more conscious of that level of being able to uh, either intuit or perceive uh, on that level. And of course, you know, from a physics point of view, everything is energy. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I think one of the things that's exciting about the time that we're living in now is we are in a time when we kind of need to wake up. And I think that the Enneagram coming more to light and more people getting interested in it is part of that. And mm -hmm. I think becoming more able to discern what's going on energetically uh, is an important piece of mm -hmm. that too. We're in the Aquarian age. We're all waking it's up. True, we are in the Aquarian <laughs> age. I think that, I mean, yes. this this brings up two things for me. I mean, first, like I think that was kind of my process with these people who were like, energetically, you're coming not across as a four. Like that was something that they quickly were like, and they said it in a way that was not like you're not a four, but it was like I'm just saying like the way I'm perceiving you is not like a four, like you are warm and you're in touch with people and you seem to be going with like the convert, like the, the way I was acting was giving big clues. And, but I think that it's, it's really tricky. Like as we're talking about people who read books and like we, we are people that read, we're people who read books and <laughs> listen to podcasts and like are like big fans of the Enneagram. Like it takes, I think a really like this intuition, this feels like playing with fire again. Like this mm -hmm. is a very, like to say, oh, your energy, I'm receiving it this way. Like without having uh, a good sense of self and without having developed that skill can I think be also very like, like, you're, like it can be really dangerous, you know, yeah. someone, someone coming in and saying, I think like based on my experience, I'm feeling this way. And telling someone, no, you can't be that because I'm not being impacted in yeah, that way. Yeah, you just got to hold it lightly. Yeah, it it's like, like holding it lightly. And then I think also just developing the skills. Like it's not like something that you just casually intuit. It's something mm -hmm. that you 
It's through knowing lots of people and actually really sitting with and being with all the numbers and feeling the different energies. And um, but so I, I like the idea of cultivating a rapport with people that you know and are close with, of being able to just reflect back. Like, I'm picking up this from you, whether we're talking about the Enneagram or not, and just be like, just you know, use that information <laughs> however you want, <laughs> you know? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Take it as one piece of data yeah. or yeah. dismiss it. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. I, I really, mean, we, 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 this, this story always kind of looms large in my head. Cause I, all the Enneagram teachers, I think Mace leans towards Gurchief and I lean towards Naranjo. And then we both don't know quite what to do with the Chazo. Who supposedly is a nine. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> there was this sort of legendary story of Naranjo going there and, and kind of, being like, I don't trust you to Ichazo. Um, and basically reading the energy, I feel like ultimately just being like, I, I don't, and, and Ichazo didn't seem to have a good response to that. Like, he's like, I don't really trust you. What, what, what do I do with this? And it was like, they just kind of parted ways. I, I don't know if that's just a, an urban I legend don't know if that's, or what. I know that story. I feel like you told, I think Did we I talked about it story? on the history of the Enneagram, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I, I, all that to say, I think there's something interesting about reading energy, and I think there's yeah. something valid about it. Um, I have, I have like a, a question that I think both of us talk about a lot. Okay. That it's like we should utilize this opportunity. Okay. What is your opinion on how, uh, on what age uh, <gasps> the enneagram Good should question. be introduced Good to question. people? Like, is it appropriate to be talking about the enneagram with a 16 year old? I have a 16 and a 14 year old. We talk about it all the time, and sometimes I'm wondering, is this inappropriate like <laughs> what, what do you what do you think about that so in my opinion on this is I, I don't think it's inappropriate I think it would be inappropriate to push it on a teenager or a child um to to insist or to yeah. say you're this type I think I think children and teenagers are still finding out who they are and they need space to develop and and discover their own identity um, and so, but I don't think it's, it's a problem to put it out there, especially if they get interested, I think yeah. you need to let them come to it instead of bringing it to them, hmm. you know? Hmm. And so I think if you say, Hey, this is something I'm interested. What do you think? And they get interested and they ask questions and they start reading something. Then I think it's almost like it needs to be their choice. They need to have agency in the process and if they get interested and you enjoy talking about it and they're sort of coming toward it, uh, then I think it's it's a positive thing. I find that a lot of teenagers really like it. Um, and it's really, you know, I, I was when I was uh, training to be a counselor, I worked at a um, high school, alternative high school, um, a small alternative high school. And I taught a course in the Enneagram and uh, the people that weren't in my class kept coming up to me saying, I want a number, you know, I want a number. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really great because again, if they're coming toward it, if they're, if, and again, if you're, if you're presenting it in a very open yeah. way, in a way that's giving them a lot of choice, if they're not interested, that's fine. You know, mm-hmm. let them, let them reject it, let them go away. I think that it's the attitude with which you introduce it and you talk about it with them. Uh, but I find, and a, a, a good friend of mine's daughter, when she was a senior in high school, got really interested in the Enneagram and came to a panel series I did uh, and, you know, turned all her friends onto it. <laughs> and, and that was great, you know? Yeah. And so I, I, again, I think it needs to be them coming toward it. You can offer it, you know, invite them, 
uh, but not push it. That that's my that's my sense of it. That's so good. It's really helpful because um, I've I've done youth ministry for twenty years now, and we're, we we kind of host a youth group together, and we've done enneagram stuff. And then I have two teenagers, so sometimes I'm like. I hope this is appropriate. I and, think it's, and we are presenting it in a way that's like, it's just a tool, you know, explore as you will. Yeah. You know. And I'm glad we introduced it as like an interest group. If you wanted to come and learn about it, we're like, here's what it is. And we didn't even go into the types. I don't think, I think I just explained we the mostly symbol. Just, yeah. The symbols the and the arrows. Three, we didn't even get into seven. the numbers. <laughs> Clearly a Gertrude We were getting fan. really <laughs> like, uh, I don't know, lofty about the whole thing or something, I think, but yeah. Yeah. My inclination is always to make it fun, you know, yeah. to type the Simpsons or uh, Winnie the yeah. Pooh characters mm-hmm. or That's whatever TV show they trip. like yeah. or Marvel superheroes. You know, I think that kind of that can kind of make it fun and even educational through things that they enjoy. Yeah. Well, and I That's think good. there's this other piece of, you know, finding your type and doing the work of the personal growth of the Enneagram is super cool, but there's something about when you initially are learning the Enneagram, that's just this overall theme of the Enneagram. That's like, Hey, people are all approaching the world very differently and mm-hmm. waking up and have different goals and are interpreting what you say through a very particular lens. And so whether or not you find out your type, I think even just hearing like that, there's a lot of different ways in which people are experiencing things and, like being able to hold that, I feel like is extremely beneficial. I think even at a young age, just saying like, whoa, like people are all doing different things and I can be who I am, you know, and there's, there's other people like me and there's also other people who are really different from me. Yeah. Um, And it kind of gives, gives, it's a helpful language to say, I mean, the Enneagram civil itself is one of kind of diversity and unity and connection, but also these distinct points. Spoken like a nine. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's everywhere. Uh, before before um, Mace thought they were a nine, there was this like tide pool experience where Mace went out and created this giant symbol in these tide pools here in Seattle or Washington and, and walked the symbol and felt what it was like to be in every type. Mm. And... Yeah, uh, it's like that seems like such a nine activity. You just did that on your own. <laughs> I like come back crying. I'm like, I felt every type <laughs> moving yeah. from one type to another. <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> um, well, dang, I, I, you know, I don't know if you would be down for this, Beatrice, but like, it, would you be interested in having a, a short discussion about the differences between five and six and talking to me a little bit about <laughs> like, uh, so if, if I thought I was, I, I still lean towards five, but like mm-hmm. we were talking to these folks and we were thinking about having another conversation with them. And they said something to Mace last night, which was like, they picked up um, a little bit too much warmth from me to consider me a five. And they assumed I was a six. Now we also have a five episode in the early days that we posted on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And this woman who's 71 year old woman came in really hot on the comments and was like, I don't think you're a five. I think you're a six wing seven. And that's always stuck in my head. I'm like, huh, is that how I'm coming across? And it's like this whole, you know, takes two to know one or whatever the phrase was, which I really loved. Um, I mean, and you've been, you've been reading some six stuff today and some stuff has felt resonant. Yeah. It's so weird. So, I mean, we can hold it very lightly, but if you were willing, it'd be interesting to maybe even put some of these tools to use or something like that. Sure. Sure. Um, I can definitely ask you a few questions. Okay. And, 
and tell you what I hear. Do you, first of all, do you have a sense of what subtype of five you've identified as or leaned okay. toward? Yeah. So I've always thought I was a sexual self-pres five wing four. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that seemed to explain a lot of these things that almost we were saying in our conversation, which is like a, not a typical five, a more emotional five, a more sometimes volatile five, a more creative five, a more romantic five or um, something like that. And then even if we're talking tri-types, I've often said five, eight, four. So that can account for a little bit of my anger or frustration and stuff like that. But um, yeah, that's how I've talked about it so far. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And definitely if you relate to being more in touch with more emotions, especially Mm -hmm. on the inside, uh, that makes sense that sexual five might be uh, the place. Now, if I was exploring six with you, I would ask questions like, you know, how much do you think in terms of worst case scenarios? <sighs> yeah, this is hard because then I'm like, my wife who really knows me, um, I, I think, is this just a six wing thing or is it a six thing in sense of I do, but I do think I'm more past oriented than future oriented. I'm not that organized. I don't plan ahead hardly ever. And so the only time I can really get into true worst case scenario thinking is in social settings. Mm-hmm. Like my wife is like, we're going to a party tonight. And I'm like, I wish I would have known about that a week ago. Like I have to prep myself a lot for that situation. And now the worst case scenario is I'm going to hate this evening, you know, but I don't think of like disasters or impending doom or car accidents or things mm-hmm. like that, you know, which is, I know maybe too pigeonhole for a six, but. Right. So I heard about four things in what you just said yeah. that tilt me more toward five than six. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One is like not planning ahead a lot. Like, you know, sixes are all about preparation. Right. You know, it's yeah. all about preparing. I'm hardly ever prepared. No, this guy's never prepared. <laughs> <laughs> Different scenarios, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, that's one thing. And the other thing, it sounds very five-ish, um, is, is that where you went with that worst case scenario question is, well, the one case where I would is a social situation. Yeah. And that if we're, I, I don't want that sprung on me. Like fives don't like surprises, especially when it's being around other people. You know, the five thing is all about regulating energy and resources around being with other people. Yes. Um, And so it's very five-ish to say to your wife, I wish you had told me so I could prepare myself. So that's not just any worst case scenario thing. That's a very specific example, which is Mm. all about I need to get oriented inside myself to prepare for managing the situation where I'm going to be with other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's somebody that's done youth ministry for a long time. Um, you know, I'll plan these huge trips oftentimes with like 150 people, but I'm hardly ever in the details. Like I don't, I don't have any of the emergency kits planned or so that's why I'm just wondering about sixes. I'm just like, yeah, no, I mean, I do have, I do. I am familiar with fear. Um, I do question authority, authority a lot. Yeah. Like I have a very ambivalent relationship with authority. Um, you know, we were just listening to an episode on attachment theory and object relations. And I was like, well, that is a very big difference. So it's like, maybe I'm just getting in my head too much about the, the difference seemed to be that sixes have never individuated. 
and fives have individuated too aggressively. Um, so I related one of the things that, that these two fives said in the podcast is that they don't miss people, you know, and I really related to that. I mean, it sounds so sad, but, um, a typical scenario for me is somebody will call me after not talking for eight months and be like, we haven't talked, you know, how are you? And I'm like, didn't we just talk yesterday? I felt like we just <laughs> talked yesterday. I mean, I really feel that way, you know? Um, well, in some ways, fives don't miss people because they are with people in their minds. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. It's not, it's not that you don't miss someone. Uh, it's like thinking of someone is the same as being with them. Yeah. Uh, that's so nice of you to say it that way. I've never said it that way, but that is how I feel. I mean, to a certain extent, I'm having conversations with the person and I'm also reflecting back and sort of treasuring the conversations. I, I went right. out, I went to Green Lake with my friend Bobby in Wisconsin for like three days. And this was like seven years ago. And we were together for four days and we still consider each other top, top friends. But we had so many rich conversations. And I remember we like uh, went like on this long, like dark, starry night boat ride across this giant lake and had just huge conversation. And to me, I just carry that around. And I'm sort of still in the boat. And I'm like, sometimes after I haven't talked to Bobby in a while, I should, I should call him. But yeah, that's, that's a nice way to put it. I, 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 would, I would want that sentiment to make people feel nice, you know, about our relationship. I'm like, I'm holding you close. <laughs> I just don't, I just don't need a lot of time spent, you know. Um, what, what do you, what would you say about this idea of um, warmth? Um, like, part of me growing up in a Christian environment and sort of being raised up to be a, a Christian leader of sorts, mm -hmm. there was always an imperative to be charismatic and warm. So when somebody encounters me and says something along the lines of like, well, you're not like a typical five, there's, there's too much warmth or energy coming from you. I'm just like, yeah, I see that. I know that fives are a little bit more introverted and bookish and insect like insect. Like someone said, yeah. Um, and I sometimes want people to know that that's inside of me, but I'm also in whatever way, like there, like I said, there's been an imperative and an expectation that that's not appropriate, especially as a Christian, you need to be sunny. You need to be sharing the love of Jesus. You need to be warm and, and joyful and filled with the spirit, you know? So it's like, I just never thought it was appropriate to sort of be acting out in my default, which is why the thing I, th I think I like being alone sometimes is like, I don't have to do this like sunny warmth anymore. I can just be, you know, um, what do you think about that? <laughs> well, I, I want to say that one way I hear that feedback you've gotten is that some people may have too narrow a conception of what fives can be. Hmm. Right. So yeah. we need to always be aware that there's such a big tendency to stereotype types um, in different ways. And fives, I think, get stereotyped in that they're bookish, they're, they're, they're not very expressive. Mm. Uh, and if they're charismatic, they can't be a five. And right. I think that's not true. Um, you know, and part of this is, you know, I work with a five, my partner, my business yeah. partner is a five and he's very charismatic yeah. and he's gotten accused a lot of not being a five, Yeah, you know, uh, and hmm. he is very much a five. It's just that I think people, I mean, for him, he's got the social 
five stuff is part of that. And for you, it could be, I think subtype sheds a lot of light on this too. I think, uh, I think fives can be warm in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sexual fives, they are in touch with, they have a, they have a need for a relationship. They have more contact with emotion. And while they don't always show that, it can come out in the way that they act. And I think like what you're saying is, you know, you had this message in your environment in the cultural environment that you lived in, still live in, that it's a good thing to be charismatic, to be warm, to be, a, a, this is what a leader means. And so it's almost like, it sounds like you've had a little more permission uh, to allow that part of yourself out, maybe some pressure too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More pressure <laughs> than permission. <And laughs> so that kind of makes sense. But it also, I'm also hearing something very five-ish where it's like, that's why it's a relief to be alone sometimes. Yeah, totally. Because I do feel this kind of pressure. On one hand, it is me and I have that ability. And maybe you express your gift more than some fives either allow themselves to or have been encouraged to or feel safe doing. Um, and on the other hand, you know, it's, it sounds like it's also a little bit of a burden, uh, oh. <laughs> to have to fill the role of this particular kind of leader. Mm. Yeah. It's been nice doing a virtual youth group. You know, it's like, I don't always have to be in a room with a group of people now, but I still get that benefit of doing whatever we're doing in this group, you know, um, another, maybe just to interrogate this five things sometimes, uh, there's also this element of um, a five's ability to um, deep dive a lot of information, mm-hmm. which yeah. I love to do. But I feel like the twist I've put on with the sexual five is in terms of their survival and in the way I understand it is they're doing what maybe a social five would do with books and information with people and their close intimates. So to me, it seems like there's a sense for survival that like the people that I'm closest with, I channel that desire to know on them. And that's, that's why my wife would probably say that, that, that I never stop asking questions. I'm always wanting to know more. There's never enough reporting on her inner life, her emotions, how she's doing, what she's thinking. And I'm just always, it's like 20 years of marriage and I'm still, which can be fun and exciting, but can be, a double-edged sword, I guess, or I don't know what metaphor you'd want to use for that of like, we can go out to dinner and I'm still very, very, very interested in her. And sometimes what she'll say is, um, just let my, let my, um, let my report be my report. If she says I'm sad, just let that be true. <laughs> you know, like, why are you sad? We have to figure this out. Yeah. Like, what could it be? What could the, what could have made you sad at the very beginning? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, does that sound true for what a sexual five would be up to? Yes, yeah. very much. So. Okay. Very much. So uh, sexual five have more need for depth mm-hmm. and to go deep with people and especially people and not everybody, you yeah. know, especially important people. Uh, and, and again, I think, I think you're right. I think there's sort of a mix of things that could be going on there. Uh, one is just a deep interest, you know, where, where your interest, your intellectual interest lies is knowing more about the internal workings of someone that you're interested in or care yeah. about. Um, and another is just the experience of, I mean, with fives, because they unconsciously sort of limit the kinds of experiences that they allow themselves to have, uh, they sometimes want to go deeper with the ones that feel more comfortable. Um 
And there could also be a way of the more your wife reveals herself to you, the safer you feel Hmm. both being with her and being known and seen by her as well. Hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. That That sounds, (laughs) does does that sound true to you? Two to no one? What? Two to no one. Reflecting back on myself. Two to on one, no. No, myself. I mean, that does sound true to me as someone, <laughs> as one of the few people that you let in. It does sound true. <laughs> it's tough because um, my wife's a social nine. And, uh, you know, we got married when we were 24. So, or 22. Got married when we were 22. Had kids when we were 24. Wow. And I think there was just this natural sense from my wife. I had no idea what I was getting into of just, we're just going to be collecting friends all the time. I mean, there was, <laughs> it was almost like, um, you know, a, 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 a dog that's gone out and caught like a, a an animal, you know, like a, a cat that's brought home a, an animal, or I don't know why that image, but like my wife would come home from the day and be like, I have some new friends for us. The, and it's just like this constant. And I'm like, I have enough friends. And <laughs> why are you bringing more friends? You know, I, like, I mean, to a certain extent, I was just like, let's just go deep with these other friends that we have. Like, we have these friends already. Like, why more? And uh, being in church settings, and my wife works at a church too, it's just this constant sense of not only meeting people all the time, but like, all, again, the imperative as a, as a pastor or somebody working in ministry of like, not only would I like to make friends, but uh, I should be making more friends and <laughs> we should be hosting people all the time. And um, I don't know why I'm bringing that up. I, I, I think maybe just like, just corroborate. I don't think there's these early up. days of like really not understanding. I felt so curmudgeonly. I was like, I don't, I remember just certain times where all I could say was, I don't want to. I just was like, I, my wife would be like, why, why? These are, these are our, it's like these big, sentences in all caps from both of us, like my wife being like, these are our friends, you know? And I'm like, I don't want to. It's like all we can, all we know how to say. Uh, Now there's nuance to it, but uh, it's, we're still deadlocked sometimes. (laughs) Like I'm done. I'm done making new friends. No. And I mean, I find myself in that situation when I'm like, I want you to be friends with my housemates and like you are, but like there is this piece of me that's like, I'm always wanting a little bit more social from you in that sense. And yeah. it's like, I think realizing like that's, I have to just let it go. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I, this is why I, one example of why I think the Enneagram is such a gift for fives, because I've heard so many fives say, you know, I thought there was something wrong with me, but then I realized I'm just a five, you know, or other people told me there was something wrong with me because yeah. I didn't want to hang out with all these people. I didn't want to be friends with everyone. I didn't want to be that social. But then I found out there's actually nothing wrong with me. Yeah. That this is a valid choice, a valid way to be. And and when it comes up against, you know, twos and nines and people like that who like to be around a lot of people. Uh, it can seem like the wrong way to be, but it's really not. It's just a different, it's just yeah. the five way to be. Yeah. I've always thought about um, rewriting the story of a Christmas Carol with Scrooge <laughs> with a uh, Scrooge and his natural posture. And this being like an empath, uh, uh, an empathetic thing that <laughs> yes. like the, the empathetic <laughs> portrait of Scrooge. Interesting. You, you know, my mom is a two. We watched this uh, musical of Scrooge with Albert Finney growing up and it all ends with him having, you know, the revelation and the last line is I'm going to go have Christmas dinner with my family, you know? And mm-hmm. I think that was such a beautiful and warm thing for my mom, which is beautiful and warm. But I wonder if my version is, 
I've realized that today on Christmas, I'm going to have a nice dinner by myself and that's okay. (laughs) And and that's also something to celebrate. (laughs) Um, Yeah, because we all sort of naturally approach Scrooge as like, he needs to wake up and realize that he needs more people in his life. And I'm like, well, also, Also, Scrooge is okay. I mean, maybe he needs to not be so hoarding with his money, but um, his natural way of being is fine. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay to want to be alone. Oh, go ahead. He's not necessarily the villain that yeah. you perceive him as. Yes. Um, I guess maybe just to, I, I don't know what to say. It's like, uh, if, if, if just for the sake of uh, modeling out what maybe we're hoping for others is, is there anything I should be considering just to, just to sort of, um, I don't know, put the pin in, being a six, like, is, is there something like clear indicators or there's, is there something I should be open to? I don't, I don't know exactly what I'm asking, but it's like, I want to be open to that or model and maybe, maybe fake being open. (laughs) 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 Um, like what, what, what would I be looking for? Uh, if I was entertaining the idea of being a six, I mean, obviously I know sixes, but, um, yeah. What do you think? They're both fear types. They're both head, head types. I relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes sense. Most fives, many fives will relate to a lot of the six stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of normal being a five. I think the main thing when you're really trying to discern between types is to really look at the questions like it's either this or this. Yeah. Yeah. Like either you're really focused on this or you're not as much focused on Mm -hmm. that. You know, most sixes will need to, uh, be focused on worst case scenario a good part of the time. And in, in, in like you're saying, more of a global way as, as opposed to just in these circumstances. Most sixes will think in terms of contrarian, mm. you know, always thinking of the other side of it almost mm. as a automatic reaction. Um, and then also I think the other part of it is seeing what's quintessentially five in you and recognizing that that's, really characteristic of you. You know, right. you've described a lot of things that are very five-ish yeah. <laughs> and you talked about them in a way that's very clear hmm. and very, you know, it's, I'm, I'm not hearing someone who's not really a five talking about being a five. I'm hearing someone who's talking about it from <laughs> an experience. Yeah, of being yeah. that way. I, like for instance, I think one really quintessential five characteristic that if you have this, you're probably a five is the concern about regulating your energy and your resources. Uh, And so I hear that when you say, we're going to a party, wait a minute, I need time to, because I need time to orient myself. To charge the battery. (laughs) How much energy am I going to need to expend? How long is it going to be? How long will I have to be there? You know, sixes don't think in terms of all those Mm. energetic resource expenditure questions. Um, they, that's just not the focal point, you know, and I would say another thing is how, how your fear plays out, like just relating to fear, you know, most fives don't live in their fear as much as sixes do. Yeah. Fives get good at avoiding situations in which they would feel fearful. Um, <laughs> and so they're not really always living in fear as much as sixes are, even though sixes can be more or less aware of it. They can call fear something else, like being really concerned about being prepared. Yeah. Uh, and I do think like being prepared for different scenarios, uh, forecasting potential problems and being really on guard, on alert 
is also a sixth thing. Fives tend to be a little more relaxed, especially if they've know that they can have their private time or they they're managing mm. uh, and controlling their environment and their interactions. They can, they don't really necessarily live so much from a, from a place of fear all the time. That's really helpful. I, I, I was just getting really in my head about it last night. I took a test again and I always test as a four, but it's like so on the razor edge and it's, it, it's exactly what you're talking about. Like the asking the questions. And I think that is always, what brings me back to five is the the management of energy from, Mm -hmm. from as long as I can remember. I mean, even in college when I was theoretically supposed to have more energy and I thought it's like one of those things where you thought, I I thought everybody was doing this, but you know, somebody was like, we're going to have a party tomorrow night. And I'd be like, okay, well that means tonight I'm going to stay up really late and sleep in really late so that tomorrow when I go to this party, I'll be ready to stay up late and get myself all ready for that experience. But there was just no way, even in college, where somebody could come up to me at nine o'clock at night and say, we're all going to a party. And I didn't understand how people did that. I'm like, what do you mean you're going to a party? You're just going like right from studying and this to just a party. And are, are you getting dressed? Like what? You're just going to go? You know, it's just like impossible for me to understand. And uh, I remember one night specifically, it was like it snowed. And, you know, here in Seattle, it's like doesn't happen very often. So it's a very fun and spontaneous thing. And we had a choir concert the next day. And I was living in this house where my bedroom was on the first floor. And it was just like everybody's banging on my door, like come out and have this snow fight. And I'm like, I've been planning this night of sleep to get ready for this choir concert for like two weeks. I am not coming out in the snow. Like there's just no way. I mean, I see it. I see that it would be fun, but no way, (laughs) you know, and people are shocked. so hearing you talk, I can't understand how you would ever doubt your yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what you're just saying. Yeah. Like, and one of the things fives have trouble with is being spontaneous. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know? And I think you're, you're describing that really clearly. Another thing about fives is, so a lot of people will say they need time alone, yeah. right? But for fives, it's a much bigger need. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's not a, it's not a like to have a good to have. It's a must have. Yes. Uh, and how much time alone, like you're saying, I make a calculation in my head. If I know I'm not going to be alone for this period, I'm going to be in a social situation. I need to budget all this other time mm-hmm. to be alone or to get rest or to store up energy for that. I mean, that no one thinks of like that in the same way a five does. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It is nice. I, I was, I was just like, it, it is one of those things where it's like, because we want to be open and model what we're asking for. And even thinking about this series of episodes we want to release that we're calling the blitz. It's like maybe part of it was going to be starting with Mace realizing they were a nine and then doing this and just talking about the pitfalls of mistyping. And so I wanted to be open to that too. And so I'm like, man, am I, am I six? And uh, I'm happy for you, but there was a moment where it was nice. You were like, oh, I see how stressful this was, thinking you're a new type all of a sudden. Oh, I know. I was, I was relating. Like, I was alone. relating. Yeah. <laughs> this has been so stressful the past three weeks. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's just been interesting, I guess, for just the sake of conversation, but even listeners for that matter, because we hint at these things. But um, we, I was working at a big church, and it was like, you know, about 2,500 people and the youth group was so huge with so many expectations. And now in quarantine right now, we're in this, this room of my house. that's in like a basement that is sort of considered like a game room or a bonus room. And we've turned it into my office. 
but it's it's got all sealed doors and it's very private. It's cut off from the rest of my family and house. And for quarantine, it's just been, I always say 2020 was one of the best years of my life. I've just been <laughs> here all day. <laughs> uh, it's just really nice. Um, but you would think, I guess that's, that's why I've had a hard time in just the last 24 hours thinking about six. I don't sit down here and plan for the future very much. You just sit. Um, we have the, all these sticky notes around this room with goals for the podcast, but I really need help getting outside of my head and thinking about the future and making and creating goals and doing. I know we're both, we're both really doing repressed here a nine and a five. Yeah. thought we were a nine and a four or a, a five and a four. Either way, doing repressed. either way, yeah. a lot of withdrawn, a lot of in our heads, a lot of confusing. What do they say? Confusing thinking and feeling with doing. Yeah, we do. <laughs> yeah. We thought about it and we felt we it, so we did it. it. We felt it. So like that was a lot of work we just did. Where's your website then? <laughs> One email sent. I'm like, yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just want to say thank you. This has been very, very helpful because I really do trust your opinion. And it's hard. It's 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 nice for me to just um, hear the words out loud and know that they ring true to my own spirit. Um, there's a philosopher that I love to listen to. His name is Peter Rollins, and he talks a lot about psychoanalysis and religion. And he was just saying part of that psychoanalytic process is almost like um, playing a record and playing it in reverse and getting the hidden meaning. Like mm. you say your words, now let's go back and listen to what you said because the reality and the truth is embedded in what you just said. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's yeah. been very helpful for me. But I love it in this idea of like it takes two to know one of saying it out loud and getting some feedback. And, you know, it could be that both of you say, we hear what you're saying, but it's just not landing very well. We feel like that's not actually true to who you are. Yeah. And so to get that sense of like, I think we all feel like this is true. Yeah. You're not, you're not creating a character that's a five or something like that. And it's, it's just nice too, because it's like what you said, all the language surrounding five in the early days of me discovering that number helped me understand so many things about a lot of my social interactions, like certain things that people never knew that I did. Like this is just one example because it's so um, poignant, Mm -hmm. but I often leave social situations and go sit in a bathroom or by myself for like 30 minutes to recharge. (laughs) (laughs) I know another five that hides in the bathroom. (laughs) Is that your Anya? (laughs) Um, Yeah, there was this time we were visiting our friends down at Fuller Seminary in California, and these are our best friends, so comfortable, and we all had kids at the time, and I still have kids, but they were young kids, and they're playing in this house, and we had a hotel right across the street, and this is what I'll often do, is like, oh, I forgot a book or a magazine up in the hotel room, I better go back, (laughs) and I go up there, and I just start to feel so happy, it's not, it wasn't an intent, it wasn't intended, but... (laughs) But it's funny because I could look down from this like ninth floor because, you know, they'll say like an owl or something for a five. And I could see the the ha- the fun and the interaction and the friendship going on down beneath me and observe it from my safe little hotel room. And it, what typically happens is like 45 minutes starts going by and I start getting texts from everybody. Where Where's are Scott? you? What are you doing? It's been 45 minutes. I thought you were just getting a magazine. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I got to go back. But um <laughs> <laughs> and the evidence for five just keeps accumulating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but sometimes I feel like people, especially in a big party, don't realize I've left. So I come back uh, charged again, and I come back people warm and happy. Realized. But some people realize. 
Um, but but some others were, I think, in the early days of me saying I was a five, some friends were like, I, I would have thought you were a seven, you know? And I'm like, you don't know all the hiding and management of this stuff I'm doing. Exactly. You, you don't know? see what goes on when you're not, when no one's looking. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, uh, Beatrice, this is, I, so we are grateful. so grateful for you and so grateful that you took the time to have this conversation. And I, I just want to put it out there as another trying to manifest our dreams. But if, if we could ever arrange to talk to you and your Anya, that would be another very, very, very huge dream for us. <laughs> um, cause I, we, we love your dynamic and we've learned a lot mm-hmm. from you guys as podcast co-hosts of just, um, listening to each other mm-hmm. and, uh, being curious about each other. Uh, sometimes we'll just try to imitate the way you guys, what do you think about that? What B? do you think about that, B? <laughs> <laughs> Is this true? Well, what I like about what you said, you're on. I'm like, okay, that's really nice and honoring. <laughs> wow, um, I'm honored to hear that. Really, it's yeah. an honor to talk to you and to to hear that that's uh, affected you in that way. Yeah. Um, do you want to have any, do you have any closing thoughts that you want to say to Beatrice? No, no big closing thoughts. This has just been really, really fun and really helpful. And I think I'm, I'm really happy that we got to do this little, little typing thing towards the end. Cause Scott was kind of stressing today about it. I think. Yeah. I was just like, man, am I just don't know myself. I mean, I'm 41. So it's, it's like, I think I, I went through a mild midlife crisis in the last two years of just really being like prepping myself for the next phase of my life journey and thinking I was doing a lot of taking stock and making an assessment of my, my issues and baggage and using the Enneagram to do that. So I was like, gosh, if I had just been so narrow-minded, I think I'm a five. And, and then obviously being part of your journey has really thrown me off too. Yeah. So <laughs> we've all been uh, thrown by this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yeah. Thank you so much. We're so grateful for you. Um, and I honestly hope we're able to do it again someday. Um, whenever you're available or willing or wanting so yeah yeah i'd like that that would yeah. be great yeah and i i'll, I'll bring uranio around along next time oh it'd be yeah. so fun it would be so fun <laughs> <laughs> okay All well right. thank you so much thank Beatrice. you so much have a great rest of your day thank you you too okay